He's becoming more and more tachycardic, but he's still talking to me. I had them call the cardiac surgeon. And as soon as they got him on the phone, the R1 waveform just went flat. And so I called a code blue. So in retrospect, it's obvious what happened. But in the time I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what did I just give him? Am I sure that's Zofran? What if I pulled the wrong bed? And I wasn't paying attention or what else starts with a Z that's on his mar? Like, what did I, what did I do to my patient? That's what's going through my head, right? Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline. Be inspired to speak up and advocate and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. I have a special treat for you all today. Here with me for this episode on cardiac tamponade is the nurse that taught me hemodynamics, one of the smartest and most level-headed clinicians I've ever worked with, the nurse leader who's got your back when the patient's crashing, and he also happens to be my boss. Brian McCain, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate that. I'm very flattered by the comments and, and happy to be here. If you know anything about Sarah, um, you know that it's, you kind of feel like she's your boss sometimes. Absolutely in a good way. But thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Awesome. So before we dive into the case, I just wanted to take a second to tell my listeners about the first time that I met you. So I was on orientation as a new CVICU nurse, and you were still the night shift charge nurse. I had not met you. I come on the shift and there's an open chest happening. And I recognized the surgeon but I didn't know who you were. So I asked my preceptor, I was like, hey, who's the guy on the right? She's like, oh, that's Brian. I was like, okay, Brian, what is he, what is he a doctor? Oh no, he's the, the nice of charge nurse. I was like, what? Nurses get to do that? I was like, why are you gonna teach me how to do that? What's, what's he massaging the heart in there? She's like, oh no, 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 you're not gonna do that. It's like, well, why not? Brian's doing it. Brian's got his hands in the chest all scrubbed in. She's like, no, no, Brian's been here for a long time. He's very well respected by the doctors. Like, I don't think that's something you're gonna be learning on orientation or, or ever. I was like, but, but Brian gets to, anyways, needless to say, I've never been invited to put my hands on the patient's chest in an open arrest, but you know, goals. So Brian, can you take a moment just to tell my listeners, like, how long have you been a nurse? What type of nursing roles have you had? And what do you love about being a nurse? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've, I've been a nurse. I got my nursing degree in Pittsburgh in uh, 1994. So dating myself. So, I mean, I've been a nurse for almost 30 years now. You know, I spent most of the time, my time at the University of Florida. I was a med surge nurse for about the first five years of my career, charge nurse there and things like that. And that was such a great experience. I learned a lot from working in med surge, you know, that first four or five years. And, uh, and then I went to the CVICU, which really became my love and my passion. And really, that's what I've been doing, being a part of cardiovascular ICU since 1999. So... You know, that's, you know, that's where my heart is, no pun intended. And I mean, <laughs> there's so much, I, I mean, you know, I could do a whole sort of podcast on what I love about nursing. You know, a lot of it is, you know, of course, it's the, the, the great patient stories and the outcomes. A lot of it is the team, you know, and, and the relationships you have with other staff and, and the things you go through together when you're taking care of really sick patients and how you learn from each other and the stories that you tell years down the road about mm -hmm. the patient and, and the things you did and, and, and the mistakes you made and how you learn from those. And so 
I think a lot of it is the camaraderie that you have with critical care nurses that, that just really is kind of irreplaceable. Awesome. All right. So I have this crazy case of cardiac tamponade I want to tell you about. And then I was hoping you could just help me dissect it and break down afterwards, like the pathophysiology assessment findings, all the different things. All right. So here we go. So I'm caring for this patient who is one day post-op from some valve surgery. Don't really remember, honestly. He had a Swangens cast still in. He had an art line. We had extubated him earlier that morning. He was doing really well. I had to wean him off all of his pressors. So for dinner, I told him, you are getting up to the chair. I got him up all by myself with very little effort. He did really well. Soon after he was up, he started feeling nauseated and kind of lightheaded. And his blood pressure had dropped a little bit. His map was still in the 60s. But you know how when the patients are sitting up in a chair, their transducer might not be perfect. It's hard to really completely trust the art line. So I left him in the chair. I went to get some PR and Zofran. By the time I returned, he said he really didn't feel good. He wanted to get back in bed. Now, usually I'm a stickler about patients sitting up in the chair for meals, but he did look worse to me. So I got him back in bed. And then once he was in bed, I gave him the Zofran slow IV push and I'm watching his art line waveform and it's looking like increasingly or decreasingly, but looking more dampened is, is the concern here. So I push in the Zofran and then I'm kind of tinkering with the art line, trying to get it zeroed again. Like, I don't know what's going on with this thing. Blood pressure's dropping. And now I'm noticing all of his numbers are kind of wonky. Like his CVP is climbing, but his blood pressure is dropping. He's becoming more and more tachycardic, but he's still talking to me. So I called for help. My pod ate. I had them call the cardiac surgeon. And as soon as they got him on the phone, the art one waveform just went flat. And so I called a code blue. So in retrospect, it's obvious what happened. But in the time I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what did I just give him? Am I sure that's Zofran? What if I pulled the wrong bed? And I wasn't paying attention or what else starts with a Z that's on his mar? Like, what did I, what did I do to my patient? That's what's going through my head, right? So um, I did not take time to assess for GVD or listen for muffled heart sounds or look for pulses paradoxes. All I knew was I gave Zofran and my patient crashed. But I was thinking about how his vital signs were trending. And that was weird. So I made sure I made that very clear when the CT surgery team arrived. They took one peek of the patient. They kind of knew it was cardiac tamponade. We proceeded to crack the chest open. The surgeon performed cardiac massage. We got ROSC. He said he could see the spot that was bleeding, but he just held pressure on it with his finger. Yeah. He's like, I need to get the patient back to the OR, get them on yeah. the heart-lung bypass machine, and then I can repair it. So we literally wheeled the patient back to the OR with the surgeon's hand in the patient. It was crazy. I was yeah. so wishing you were there, but you were off campus that day for something. Otherwise, I know you would have been all up in the chaos. Anyway, so I want to take some time to go through all of the clinical findings, like what, like what I was discovering for tamponade. But do you have any initial thoughts, Brian, about that particular case or clarifications? Yeah, and I mean, so I think, you know, it's that one's kind of pretty classic tamponade, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's post-op day one, right? So, you know, we're all sort of typically kind of on alert for it. You know, was this the first time the patient got up? Maybe, yep. maybe, yeah, sounds like it was. And then I, I think it's interesting how is, as cardiovascular ICU nurses, we're pretty aggressive with, with getting people up and, and, and sort of not taking a no for the answer. Then you feel bad when you- When they go to Tampa? <laughs> when they go in the Tampa, not like, maybe I pushed that one a little bit too far, right? It's always- Sort of that interesting phenomenon, but yeah, classic thing you see, and, and whether you're talking about, you know, pulses paradoxus or or triad, you know, sort of the, the one sort of common theme between 
those two phenomenons, what you see in cardiac tamponade is that sort of exaggerated drop in blood pressure, but you didn't see it at first. I mean, you're looking at him, he's starting to feel bad, right? And, and you know, typically they'll, they'll show signs of low cardiac output syndrome, right? So they're, they're diaphoretic. They may sort of start to get anxious. and Which and I thought breath. the diaphoresis was from nausea. I was like, okay, I get diaphoretic, yeah, I'm nauseous is, too. Could be. <laughs> Right, but but that's sort of what you see first. Bex triad would tell you that you see the jugular vein distension. That's you don't always see that clearly, right? Particularly mm-hmm. if the patient has been slightly hypovolemic, right? And, mm-hmm. and many patients are still sort of sorting out their fluid balance in that period. So the JVD, in my experience, has not been obvious. Mm-hmm. And then, and another thing I would say is, by the time it is obvious. The patient's already deteriorating, right? You already right. know the tamponading. You already know something really bad is happening. Rarely in my career have I seen that sort of sign be early enough that you could say, "Oh, this is this is what's happening." Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's typically sort of that that course that you see. You throw the patient, and sometimes it's literally tossing the patient back in the bed, getting them flat, you know, trying to get the mean arterial pressure up and then getting the support to the bedside. This patient, I didn't I didn't hear or did hear. Did this patient still have chest tubes, right? Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah. I don't right? know so if they were they clogged wanted, off so or... Right. And so that's, that's another thing is, and, and it can trick you up too. I mean, it, if it's sometimes a chest tube, if it's clogged off or not draining, it steers you away from what you might think is tamponade, mm-hmm. right? But but that's the worst, worst possible outcome then uh, or at least at least leading to sort of tamponade that, that that causes you know cardiac compression is when you don't have that functioning chest tube because obviously you're not decompressing the chest right you're not decompressing the the thorax and the pericardium if the chest tube is clogged or kinked or or things like that so you know that that may have sort of been one of those things where it, it trips you up a little bit. Oh, it's not tamponade. There's nothing coming out of the tube. Well, is the tube patent? So sometimes that that can steer you in the wrong direction. So before we go too much deeper, can you take time to just define cardiac tamponade? What's actually happening yeah. from that pericardial sac, and then how does this patient die? Like, how do patients die from cardiac tamponade? Yeah, sure. So so tamponade is a is a fluid collection in the pericardial sac that that fills that you know is, is sort of fills around the heart, right? And so it doesn't have to be blood, right? It, it can be, you know, it can be fluid. In this case, and, and typically in the post-surgical patient, we're talking about blood, but it doesn't have to be blood. So when you know the heart obviously needs to to contract and to expand. So it needs its systolic function and it needs its diastolic function or his its filling function. <clears throat> and so when fluid fills in around that sac, it starts this compressive phenomenon. And I like to I like to think of cardiac tamponade as a diastolic because the heart, if you think about it, if the heart can squeeze fine, the heart squeezes just fine, but every time if you have fluid collecting in that sac around the heart, then the heart squeezes just fine. In other words, contracts and ejects but then it can't fill quite as well because fluid begins collecting. And then it ejects again in its systolic phase, and then more fluid starts to fill in the sac, and then it can't fill anymore. 
So then it becomes a, a point where it can't fill anymore. So it can't expand anymore. And then it gets to that point where if it can't expand anymore, then it can't inject at all. And it becomes kind of a standstill in, in, in a way where there's no cycle. There's no filling. There's no injecting. There's no cycle. So you think about your heart is stopped at that point. And of course, you die of, of zero perfusion and, and or anoxia or hypoxia and when the blood can't no longer can be circulated because the heart is no longer ejecting or filling at that point. You're not moving blood to your vital organs, particularly your brain or any other organs. You're not perfusing and pushing blood through your lungs. So you, you essentially die of, of cardiac arrest. Okay. Yeah. So if that's what's happening physiologically, what type of assessment findings, and you already kind of hinted at these, what types of assessment findings will you see when you're looking at your patient, when you're looking at their hemodynamics? Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you start sort of with the, with the head down, if you think neuro first, right, you're going to typically what you see is that first, I don't feel well, almost a panic anxiety, which can quickly sort of progress to somnolence. Uh, patients become like they become lightheaded. I mean, they may still be talking to you, but you can tell that they're not really, that they're kind of fading, if you will. You know, and they, they can sort of, that obviously can protect, progress to the point where they're abundant. They may still be breathing and they, they may, their heart's still, but you know, when, when you were talking to them, you know, 15, 30 seconds ago, a minute ago, and they seem to be sort of at least bright-eyed and attentive, and now you're talking to them and they have that, you know, dazed look in their eye. They don't feel well, but they're not responding to you as quickly as, as, as they were. That's one of the first things you see. Um, diaphoresis is another one that I think is pretty common. So they, they kind of get that cool, clammy. They, they get pallor, so they get pale. They, they, they start to get diaphoretic. They're cool and clammy. Their pulse rate's fast, but usually it's a weakened pulse, almost a thready pulse, and particularly as you progress to the periphery. So your radial pulse may be, you know, starting to get sort of thready and you can feel it, but it's it seems like a weakened pulse. Then you go down to maybe pedal pulses and you can hardly feel those at all. So those are some, some of the things that you would see, particularly in that immediately, uh, that immediate, even before things like oxygen saturations that begin to drop, that typically starts to happen later. And even blood pressure can progress a little bit later, particularly the mean pressure. So I, I think that, you know, those things, tend to happen later, but those physical sort of signs, those first eyeball signs are, are the ones I just outlined. Can you talk a little bit about Beck's triad? That's like the textbook thing for cardiac tamponade. Yeah. So Beck's triad is the, uh, the jugular vein distension. So we know we have our jugular veins that are sort of at our neck and you see kind of, they'll kind of look bulging. This more as a, as a later sign. And then a sort of subsequent and, and pretty dramatic then drop in blood pressure is number two in the triad. And, and then the third one then being what you may or may not see, and of course you may or may not see any of these, but then it's the diminished heart sound on auscultation. And again, typically, you know, what you see is Generally, by the time you've seen all three, the patient is deteriorating and you're acting in a resuscitative mode. Like you've 
flipped into okay, something's going on with this patient, even if you don't know that it's that it's damp and odd. The heart sounds are generally not something that you're going to use as a diagnostic piece, not because they're, it doesn't tell you anything, but generally you've already sort of sorted out that the patient's in, in damp and odd by the time you're listening to heart sounds. I'm not sure I've ever been in a situation in which we saw a patient actively deteriorating with those things that I've outlined. We saw that drop in blood pressure. And the first thing we try to do is grab the stethoscope. We tamponade in this sort of scenario um, in which it's pretty in your face. You know, the, the stethoscope is not what you're grabbing. You're grabbing the crash card, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then what about like your art line? I'd said that the waveform kind of looked dampened, the blood pressure was dropping, the CVP was rising. If you're a cardiac ICNS with all that monitoring, what would you expect to see on the monitor? Again, I was questioning all of it because I had just repositioned the patient from the chair to the bed. So I was like, oh, I got to re-zero it. And, but if the patient's just laying still and I'm just watching the trend, what would I see? Yeah, in the art line, you know, you're going to probably see a dampened waveform. You could see the pulses paradoxus in the art line trace, meaning your, your, your systolic blood pressure kind of drops usually around greater than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration can be a little bit difficult, a single data point diagnosis. Sometimes it's hard to tell. I mean, if a patient starts, they're in tamponade and they start to breathe, you know, 25 times, 30 times a minute, you're not going to see that as pronounced because you know, the inspiratory phase is not very long when you're breathing 30 times a minute, right? But, but you know, it's something worth looking at in the arterial line is that dampened waveform. You see that first thing you go to, you're looking at the patient, you kind of either straighten the arm on the art line, right? Is it is it really dampened or is it positional? You might give the art line a quick flush and you still see it. That didn't make a difference. So you got some hypotension. You've got some dampening of your art line waveform. If you see that dampening or that, that, that hypotension during inspiration, that's pulses paradoxus. And that's a that's a pretty classic sign of cardiac tamponade. I would look for dampening first. That's the easiest thing to notice, you know, from the foot of the bed. Yeah. And what about that CVP going up? Yeah. What's going so on there? This patient had a swan which swung in. And and so I don't know if it was fully transduced, but you know, a lot of times we take the pulmonary artery, catheter out, we'll still trans the introducer and giving you a CVP, which I still think is very valuable. But one of the things that is classic and, and really something I think you can hang your hat on is if you have a pulmonary artery catheter, particularly still being transduced with the central venous pressure, you know, right atrial pressure, or and the pulmonary artery pressure, the thing that I've, I've seen the most in my career, and it, it is very telling and it's been very consistent for me, is the equalization of fill pressure. I can't stress that enough. So what you'll see and what I've seen many times in tamponade is you'll get a CVP, say a, a mean CVP pressure of, let's say, you know, 28. And you'll then you'll also see your, your, your pulmonary artery pressure. It'll sort of, you'll lose the, the, the biphasic part of it and it'll be around 26 or 27. Or 28. So you've got an equalization of fill pressures. You've got a pulmonary artery pressure that's 28. You've got a CVP that's 28 with, with, with poor biphasic, meaning you don't have a, 
a large amplitude and minimum amp, max point and min point on your waves. When you see equalization of fill pressure, that's almost never a good sign in cardiac patients. And it's a clear, it's a classic sign of cardiac cancer. Yeah. So, I hope so that makes sense. Yep. no, that's perfect. So like I said earlier, this patient declined so quickly. I didn't even have time to look for all of these diagnostic findings. Like I knew something was up with the art line, but I was questioning myself so much. Like, what did I give the patient? What did I do to them that I wasn't able to really think clearly, honestly, about, oh, the art line's being damp and all that. But I have had a patient when I worked in the ER that I saw that trend, the art line kind of getting more dampened and the systolic and diastolic becoming one. And we were able to diagnose tamponade and do a pericardial synthesis and the patient actually did very well. So I, I just wanted to say it out there to people to know, even Sarah has a hard time when it's their own patient to put the pieces together. When I show up as the ER educator or as the rapid response nurse, I have no emotional ties. I can just jump right in and think clearly, but when it's your own patient, it sometimes is harder if we're questioning like, did I do this to the patient possibly? Did I give something that wasn't so frame? So can you talk a little bit about whenever it's not such a rapid decline? Like let's say this takes hours to really build up. What are some of the things you would look for to determine, is this just like a pericardial effusion possibly, or do we have tamponade on our hands? What are some things you'd look, look at? Yeah. So I, I think it's important first to understand that it can be a, a slow decline. And I use the example of a, of a, you know, a lady that we took care of in the unit who had surgery and, you know, she really didn't start to exhibit signs of tamponade until four or five days after surgery. Because uh, I understand that it can be, you know, kind of a slow and insidious trickle of, of, of blood and or fluid in the pericardial sac such that, you know, the patient does not get acutely hypotensive, does not get, you know, acutely or, or progressively sickipnic in a way that it, it catches your attention. So you still kind of are looking for the same things, but the signs and symptoms may be more subtle. And so I think it's, it's just important to understand that their energy level, their activity level, you know, if you're doing the same activity with them and, you know, they don't seem to be, you know, two days ago when you got them out of bed, they seemed to be fine and they weren't short of breath or they, you know, they didn't have any issues. This time you get them out of bed and it seems like they're really struggling, they're dyspneic, or they they really it seems like that they're having a, a harder time doing the same sort of task, or they're doing the same task, but their vital signs are changing, such as you know, their SATs are dropping more when you get them out of the chair than before, or their their respiratory rate is going up more, those sorts of things. And then, you know, it, sometimes it's hard to discern what's orthostatic hypertension, which you know, a lot of patients get with fluid shifts or whether this is related to, you know, a poor cardiac output. Okay. And can you just parse out a little bit the difference between just a pericardial effusion versus tamponade, what's happening with the sac? Sure. Pericardial effusion can be over lots of time, and it can be, it's typically more of a progressive and chronic propanod sort of, you think about, let's say, 200 cc's of of fluid or blood acutely filling that pericardial sac, leading to a rapid onset of symptoms. But people can have, you know, a liter of, of fluid or blood around in the pericardial sac. If it happens over time at such a rate where the pericardial sac has had time to compensate or, or stretch or comply. So, I mean, they may have 200, 300, 400, 500 cc's in there before they even become symptomatic. So that's one of the key differences between, you know, the acute nature of a tamponade versus the more chronic or progressive nature of a pericardial effusion. 
Good. So let's talk a little bit to our PCU nurses or MedSERS nurses who don't have all of that monitoring. What are some things that they should be looking for? You had already said like change in mental status, they're getting weaker. Are there any other like touch and feel type of signs and symptoms we can assess for without all of our hemodynamic monitoring fancy gadgets? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, you know, of course, kind of the basics, right? You know, you're Color, sensation, temperature, particularly in the periphery, you know, the, the presence of your, your radial pulse. Is it, is it, are they tachycardic? Is it fast? If it's, if it's fast, is it, is it strong? Is it weak or thready? That's typically what you'd see more weak, thready pulse with cardiac tamponade. I'm a big foot person. That's a quote. Weird. <laughs> that may sound weird on a, on a podcast, <laughs> uh, but I believe in, in really pulling the socks off and, and, and assessing the patient's feet, and I'm looking for the, the nature, the character of their pedal, their pedal pulses, and I'm also looking for the temperature. Um, are their feet are cold, cool or clammy, and they have a weak pulse down there? Those are some of the things that you don't really need to be in a hospital to assess those things, and they can be early signs of tamponade. How about the whole pulses paradoxes if you don't have an art line? Yeah, if you don't have an art line, then sort of you can sort of feel the pulse, right? And it's kind of, it can be difficult to sort of discern this sometimes, but, you know, pulses paradoxes, when you think about what's happening at inspiration, sort of thoracic space being taken up by the lungs when we breathe in, and then sort of steals the, the space that the cardiac, the pericardium and the, and the heart needs, if you, if you will, to sort of pump. So you can put your finger on the radial pulse or a brachial pulse and just feel it. And does it, does it change inspiration? Do you feel like it gets weaker, or threadier when the patient takes a deep breath? That's one little trick, again, that you don't really need any sort of monitoring to do. Very good. Um, yeah, paradoxes. So let's say we've decided this is tamponade. We got to open this patient's chest. Yeah. What all needs to happen before the surgeon ever even uses a scalpel? Like what's the nurse's role in prepping for opening up the chest? But first and foremost, you're resuscitating the patient. I would say as per guidelines. Now there, there are some- That's the safe answer. <laughs> that's the safe answer, right? That's the safest answer. There's some literature to support that you, you resuscitate these patients a little bit differently, but I won't go quite into that. But generally you resuscitate as guidelines. So you're given inotropes, you're given epi, you're given fluids and things like that. As far as the prep, what you want in an ideal scenario is the surgeon walks into the room, right? The patient is prepped and draped and the surgeon is gonna scrub, you know, wash your hands quickly, throw on a gown. And you've got the most important thing right in their face is the wire covers. That's the most important tool. If you had nothing else, right? If you had no other instruments, you want the wire cutters to be ready because you can't get in without the wire cutters. So that's one of the, I think the nurse's role is to have the tray there, you know, accessible to the patient, have the patient prepped and draped. And when we say prepped and draped, what we used to do in the in the cardiovascular ICU is we would just pour betadine on the chest. I mean, this is not a- Yeah, that's the prep, pour betadine. <laughs> and I remember when I was a newer nurse, you know, the betadine bottle you know, had the cap on it and it was a squirt bottle. Mm -hmm. and I remember one of our, one of the surgeons, a great surgeon, a great guy, a congenital heart surgeon, he, when I was first doing it, I was squeezing the bottle. In other words, it had a little hole and I was squeezing betadine on the chest. But I thought I was doing that fast. And he said, you know, what are you doing? Just take the cap off and dump it on. 
and that's what we did. So you take the cap off, you pour betadine all over the chest, you cover it, you know, the areas with the drape, and you have the wire cutters ready to go. Perfect. And then can you talk a little bit about like intracardiac epi and the sterile paddles and what's going on with that? Yeah, so that, that one is, you know, it, that's an interesting one. Um, I'm not, intracardiac epi is somewhat controversial even mm -hmm. now, particularly when you think about who might be administering that and where you're administering it. Obviously, a, a surgeon knows where they want to stick that needle. The nurse's role is to draw that up and have it ready if the surgeon asks for it, because where you give it is important. You don't want to give that in, in, into a vessel or an area or puncture a hole in an atrium or something in which you actually cause more harm. And then same thing with the paddles. Just like you get everything ready for your external defibrillation, you want to have those things ready to go. Remember, paddles are uh, the discharge at the handle level. So your job, your job is to have them connected and ready to charge at the direction of the surgeon. And then they're going to discharge the paddles at the handle level. Typically they're they're going to place the paddles sort of anterior and posteriorly in that ventricular area. And then you know your charge and, and then they'll discharge and then they'll you'll recharge again. That's usually what you'd see in these scenarios. The thing I wanted to highlight too is just that this is as sterile as we can possibly get it. Yes. Every hospital has their own process if like an OR nurse comes to open arrest or not. Yeah. But someone, right. ideally someone who's familiar with sterile technique, is the yeah. one that's being the sterile nurse. So draw up the, the episterally. Same that's thing correct. with the paddles. They come in a package that's not sterile on the outside. So yeah. someone has to sterilely open the package onto a sterile yeah. area for the yeah. surgeon who is sterile to grab hold of them and shock the heart with it. So just exactly making that very right. clear that we yeah. try to be as sterile as possible. Yep. Okay. If the patient has the to go back to the if we didn't suction, yeah. sterile suction. Good, yeah. good, good. And then very often these patients still have to go back to the OR even after we open them up. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, is there anything that you want to have with you when you're transporting back to the OR? How do you know the patient is stable enough to get back there? How do you cover the chest? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So obviously you're going to take resuscitative drugs with you. Also, you're going to take fluids for resuscitation as what you take. Right? So, you know, this is kind of happening rapidly. Uh, turn off the tube feed. I mean, you should only be taking things that are life-saving, right? I mean, you know, your, your narcotics and your analgesia, generally, you know, those aren't even taken. Usually you're just, you're taking your, your drips, your inotropes, your epi and things like that, that are kind of keeping the, the patient alive. The, the, the chest should be generally the surgeon then once we get the patient back, they usually scrub out and head down to the OR to get the OR ready. So you do want to keep that, that open chest sort of covered. Oftentimes, you know, sterile towels, perhaps with betadine on them. So spare betadine towels can be kind of laid in that chest cavity and covered for that, for that trip to, to the OR. But you're minimizing what you take. Um, you'll hear me say in these open arrest situations, let's focus on making the patient Mobile. So all this is happening very fast. You should be unplugging things. You should be ready to push out the door as soon as that open, as soon as the resuscitation, you get them back in the unit, you ought to be ready to push out the door. So when the door says we're ready, you're rolling. Respiratory's there, other nursing staff, of course. Perfect. 
So Brian, before I let you go, are there any other like pearls of wisdom, things you want every nurse to know about Tamponade? Any other little things that you want to add before we end this interview today? I think just to know that it can happen over time is important. Understand that, you know, it's not something that it jumps to mind. So your ER example and other, other areas, um, but don't rule it out as, as, as a certainly as a possibility. Look for those, those fundamental signs that, that we talked about. And then hopefully, you know, if you can recognize it early, you got an opportunity to save someone. Obviously, you know, untreated cardiac tamponade is lethal. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. I love, as usual, talking with you. This would be a great and very helpful episode for my listeners. So thank you so much. Have a good rest thank of your day. Thank you for day. having me, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thank you very right. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm glad you all got to meet Brian. I'm pretty blessed to have such an awesome boss. One of my other favorite memories of him is we were having just a crazy day as a rapid response team, just getting our butts kicked, like rapid after rapid. Um, I think he knew that we were really slammed. And so he just shows up to the rapid that I was on. And he's like, hey, Sarah, how can I help? I was like, Brian, this guy's about to code and I haven't eaten anything. He's like, okay, what can I do? Sure enough, as I said that, the patient does code. And so then they're like, we needed this and we need that. And someone give me an IO and I need alcohol wipes and need a syringe. And I'm just like whipping all these things out of my fanny pack. So I like to keep them all on my person. And then the doctor's like, I need a bougie. And Brian looks at me, he's like, do you carry a bougie in your fanny pack? He's like, no, I don't carry a bougie in my fanny pack. Where would I put that? But yeah, we enjoyed resuscitating together. And he like, he's like, go, go, go. I got this. Y'all, you eat lunch. I'll stay handle, handle this patient. Come back when you have food in your belly. So yeah, I'm very blessed to have him as a boss. I wanted to take a little bit of time just to review all that we talked about. All right. So cardiac tamponade, by definition, is when the sac surrounding the heart starts filling up with blood. And then the blood itself is what's compressing the heart, making it unable to fill appropriately. Therefore, what's squeezed out is just not enough. And that just gets worse and worse and worse to where there's no fill. So therefore, there's no squeeze. So therefore, you have no ability to perfuse and the patient dies. So what are the signs and symptoms of that? If you are taking a test, the right answer on the test is Beck's triad. <laughs> Beck's triad being hypotension. JVD or bulging neck veins because blood's starting to back up, right? And then distant or muffled heart sounds because there's blood surrounding the actual heart itself. So it's harder to hear with a stethoscope. But again, who's doing those things whenever the patient's actively crashing? Um, pulses paradoxus is the other one. That's where with every inspiration, there's a little bit more uh, pressure inside the chest. And so therefore the blood pressure drop because there's less ability to fill. The lungs are taking up more space, so the heart has less space to fill. So if you are looking on an art line, you'll see the art line waveform kind of drop down a little bit every time there's a breath. And if you are feeling the patient's radial or brachial pulse, you'll feel the pulse strength get a little bit weaker with every inspiration. Again, very hard to detect whenever they're tachypnic, but if they're breathing at a regular rate, sometimes you can, you can see or feel that. All right, and then I think what you're gonna see most of, almost every time, right, it's gonna be your basic signs of obstructive shock. So cool, clammy skin, tachycardia, we already said hypotension from Beck's triad, altered mental status, um, either one or the other, right? Either they're lethargic, like what you would expect, or sometimes they get really anxious or irritable, or they're kind of freaking out with this like impending sense of doom. 
when patients have that, don't just assume they're anxious. If they're like, I'm going to die or am I going to die? Trust that, follow that because something really bad could happen to the patient. So the treatment for cardiac nod is pericarditis or open the chest up. You know, if it's a surgical active bleed, like Brian said, how many times are you going to tap that chest with a needle, right? So at some point, you have to open it up, find the leak, and seal it, usually in the operating room. Um, so yeah, you have to open the chest up. If you have to open the chest, it's very important to assign roles because there's a lot that needs to happen simultaneously. So there's a nurse or a couple nurses that are giving medications, you know, IV pushes and titrating drips and making more access points, whatever is needed to make sure you can get all the drugs in the patient. Um, Someone has to secure an airway. So your attending or nurse practitioner or whoever can intubate the patient, my respiratory. You're going to be pouring betadine on the patient's chest and draping the area around the sternotomy as sterile as possible. Um, Usually you're going to have a non-sterile nurse assisting the sterile nurse because they have to open up packages and assist with drawing up the epinephrine if your surgeon chooses to do that. Um, If they ask for it, you'll probably need a stopcock so that you can sterilely draw out epinephrine into a sterile syringe from the unsterile package that comes in your crash cart. Let's see here. You're going to want to make sure you have the internal defib paddles and suction taken out of the package sterilely. So the non-sterile person opens those on the sterile field and the sterile person makes sure they are available to the surgeon to suction out the um, cavity and to defib the patient internally if needed. Um, Let's see here. Cover the patient. Um, in whatever sterile drape or dressing that your hospital policy states. As Brian says, make the patient mobile. So disconnect whatever non-essential stuff that you don't need and book it to the OR. Remember that cardiac tamponade doesn't always present textbook. You know, you're like listening to heart sounds casually and then they sound muffled. And what do you know? I'm seeing some JVD. And then you take a blood pressure and oh my goodness, it is a little hypotensive this must be cardiac tamponade. Like it's a lot more complex than that, but we can take all these diagnostic findings and all of these uh, assessments and put them together to come to a conclusion that this is looking like tamponade and we're gonna have to go into the chest. You know, you're not gonna take this patient to CAT scan to determine this. This is a clinical assessment finding. It's a clinical diagnosis that needs a rapid intervention. These patients absolutely will die unless we do something quickly. So if you are a cardiac nurse, if you care for any patients post-surgical, if you are an ER nurse who patients come into the ER with who knows what (laughs) that could have impaled their chest and uh, caused tamponade, it is so important to understand these signs and symptoms so you can recognize them whenever you see them. And the more you know, the better nurse you can be for your patient, right? I also wanted to make sure that we talked about the open chest because it's really scary for lots of people, but it's totally a doable thing as long as you have enough bodies in the room to do all the roles that are assigned and they actually know what needs to happen. So yes, open chest are cool. It's so awesome. There's the heart right there beating the doctor, squeezing it for So cool. But y'all, the coolest part is when the patient actually survives because we recognize the signs of decline. We did something about it quickly and the patient gets to go home to their family. So thank you so much for taking time to learn more, to invest in your professional development so that you can be the best nurse for your patient. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. 
You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.